today we are taking a look at why it is that we get to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. So welcome to the fifth and final service of our weekend. Who is here for Good Friday, by the way, just out of interest? Okay, okay, good. I'm glad you came back. Well done. Doing church twice in one weekend. That's very impressive. So if you weren't here, we took a look at some of the reasons why Jesus needed to die. Um, and it really is important to understand and appreciate that there, was, that there were several reasons and why it was that we couldn't pay for our own sins. And so I'd encourage you to download that podcast for free on our website or on iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, and just to, just to kind of give God some space to remind you of why it was that Jesus actually needed to do what he did and why it is that we can be so grateful. And today, the good news is that, is that Friday, in fact, the only thing that makes Good Friday good is because of what happened on Sunday. That Jesus actually came back from the grave, that he conquered death. And the Bible tells us that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead actually lives in us if we're in a relationship with God. So what that means is that that resurrection power. So, so, so Jesus didn't just die for us and die on our behalf and die in our place. He actually also came back to life so that, so that we don't just have forgiveness of our past available to us, but we actually have freedom for our future available to us because of what Resurrection Sunday represents. And so just for a few minutes, I want to take a look at like a pinprick of the evidence for the resurrection. There is so much written on it, some compelling evidence, really, 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 really good, thorough, intellectual, academic, historically based evidence for the resurrection. But I just want to take at some of the challenges that opponents to Christianity have, have challenged against the resurrection. And by the way, if you stop and think about how much opposition there is to Christianity around the world, even today, over 200 people killed in churches in Sri Lanka, over 450 injured today, in China today, you cannot just go to what they would call a free church. You can go to a state church, which means it's controlled, but if, you're, if you as a foreigner want to go to church in China, let's say it's in a hotel, you can only go with a passport. Like there's opposition to, uh, to Christianity. And it's amazing how vigorous, how aggressive people can be sometimes. In, like you think, well, if it's not a big deal, then why are you so you know, passionate about it? But you have people that become passionate about trying to disprove things like the resurrection and I want to encourage you, so for some people this might be some food for thought and something for you to go away and investigate and look into if you are exploring Christianity. For, for someone else, if you're already on this road, if you're already in a relationship, then I want to encourage you that you don't have to only have blind faith. There's actually a reason for your faith. There's actually a really strong foundation that you can build your faith on. Just to give you some examples, Lord Darling, who was the former Chief Justice of England, so that meant that he was the highest judge in the land, so he, he oversaw the judiciary, he represented the judiciary um, for the entire England and Wales when it came to Parliament, etc. So in other words, he, he, he had to have been a pretty astute, bright guy when it came to legal matters. He said the following, we as Christians are asked to take a very great deal on trust. The teachings, for example, and miracles of Jesus. If, however, we had to take it all on trust, I, for one, should be skeptical. The crux of the problem of whether Jesus was or was not who he claimed 
to be must surely depend on the truth of the resurrection. And on that greatest point, we are not merely asked to have faith. In its favor, there exists such overwhelming evidence, this is a great legal mind saying this, such overwhelming evidence that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. I want you to even just think for a moment the fact that we are living in 2019. We're living according to the time that Jesus was on earth. In fact, the correct term would be AD 2019. Or some of you have heard people refer to a date with a BC attached to it. So that's referring to kind of like before Christ in English terms. AD stands for Anno Domini, which, which is Old Latin, or sorry, Old Spanish, Old Latin, Old Latin for uh, the year of our Lord. The Gregorian calendar, which is this timeline that we're talking about, is the most used calendar around the world. In fact, it's generally accepted as, as, as the calendar to be used for commercial purposes, etc. The United Nations uses this calendar. We live according to the time of when Jesus lived on earth. So his life is not in question. So, so no, one's, no, no intelligent scholar has tried to dispute whether or not, or at least succeeded in disputing whether or not Jesus lived. People have not really succeeded in disputing whether or not he did some of the good things he did, whether or not he said some of the things he said. Rather, what people have tried to attack is whether or not he actually came back to life, whether or not he was raised from the dead because so much hinges on this. Simon Greenleaf was another attorney, another lawyer. In fact, he helped put um, Harvard Law School on the map amongst prestigious elite law schools in the sort of early and mid-19th century. In fact, he actually wrote, uh, wrote a work entitled The Treatise on the Law of Evidence that is still considered, at least up until recently, the greatest single authority on evidence in the entire literature of legal procedure. In other words, he wrote a work that, that is so widely used, as far as I know around the world, to actually base evidence on when it comes to deciding guilt and innocence or culpability in a legal case. So, so, so how, do you, how do we actually deal with the weight of evidence? This particular gentleman said that a person who rejects Christ, this is a very powerful statement, may choose to say that I do not accept it. He may not, however, choose to say that there is not enough evidence. Now, that's what's interesting, by the way. I was actually having a conversation with someone just before the service because he's also done some reading up on this. Uh, A great book, by the way, is Evidence That Demands a Verdict by McDowell. But it's so interesting, and I want to encourage you, especially if you're a Christian here this evening, that even if you feel like you can build a really strong case, and even if you feel like you have a great deal of evidence, that in itself does not change a heart. That in itself does not change a mind. You, 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 it's not your role to try and convince or convert someone through this, but I'm hoping that even just through looking at a little bit of it, there will be a bit of encouragement and, and a bit of hope that, oh wait, okay, this isn't just hope. This isn't just blind faith. Some of the, some of the theories that, that, that I want to just touch on briefly, for example, is whether or not the disciples and the, the first woman that they went to, to Jesus' tomb either went to the wrong tomb or whether or not it was in fact an empty 
tomb. Some have suggested while trying to dispute the resurrection that maybe the woman, because they were the first witnesses, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Well, that would assume then that the disciples also went to the wrong tomb when they came running afterwards. Or if they'd all gone to the wrong tomb, it would assume that Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb it was, that he was maybe too distracted to correct them and send them to the right tomb. And if all of them were were maybe not thinking all that clearly that day, you would imagine that the religious leaders who had just had Jesus crucified would have wasted no time in showing everybody where the right tomb was. In fact, it's been said that the empty tomb was too notorious to be denied. Like, it actually couldn't, it wasn't actually a question that that carried a lot of weight in that time. Because also the disciples didn't go to a distant city. They didn't go to, uh, to Greece. They didn't go to Rome. They went back to Jerusalem declaring that Jesus has risen. If the tomb was not empty, this claim would not have lasted for a single day. The tomb was empty. There's another theory that some people have called the swoon theory where they suggest that Jesus fainted on the cross. And you can kind of understand this um, in a sense where they're saying, well, because of the, the beating it took, the shock, the, the fatigue, and the, the loss of blood, Jesus actually fainted on the cross and that they buried him alive. What that, would have, what that would mean, though, is that these trained executioners who were really good at what they did, like that, that's what they did for a living, it, meant, it would have meant that they got it wrong in assessing him as being dead. But beyond that, it would also have meant something fairly impressive to have taken place when you consider that Jesus' body was actually wrapped in cloth along with about 50 kilograms of a gummy resin with uh, aromatic spices to kind of preserve the body. So it almost formed this, this 50 kilogram full body cast, right? Maybe you've seen that movie Fast and Furious, I think it's number five, where Dwayne the Rock Johnson falls out of a building, breaks a, like all he does is break an arm, right? Like he falls from like 20 floors, but he breaks an arm. Anyway, he's in the hospital, you know, like, uh, one minute, the next minute, you know, he's like called to action. And he's like, it breaks the, the cast, and somehow, you know, I don't know if he flexed, I don't know what he did, but somehow, like, whoosh, like the cast is gone, and, uh, and he's like ready for action, like miraculously the bone's healed. So, so, so maybe something like that where, where people are suggesting that Jesus would have had to like flex his muscles, like, whoosh, and like 50 kilograms of a body cast just disappears, right? And then in that beaten, bloodied, bruised, weakened state, because bear in mind that he was beaten to within an inch of his life. Again, go and listen to Friday's podcast, you'll understand why. In that beaten, brute, uh, sort of bruised, bloodied state, that he would be able to push back a 2,000 kilogram stone that was rolled in front of the cave, right? This is assuming that the Roman guard trained soldiers like the elite, you know, Navy SEALs would have either been so fast asleep, which would have deserved death, or they would have gone AWOL, which would have deserved death, that they would have had to, you know, he would have had to get through all of that and then to arrive at the disciples' door, knock on the door, and in that broken state, try and convince them that he had victory over death. Does that make sense? I think that if anything, it would have only confirmed the disappointment of the disciples, that he wasn't who they had hoped he would be. Another theory or argument is that the body was stolen and again, you've got to ask yourself for the exact same reasons. Like, what would the motive have been? Why, why would the disciples steal his body? Like, what, what, what motive would they have in trying to start a religion that was going to land up 
exposing pretty much all of them to torture, martyrdom, beaten, uh, being beaten, and in many cases dying, martyrs deaths. What, what would their motive have been? Or it's been argued that maybe the Jewish authorities or the, or the Roman authorities would have stolen the body to protect the body from the disciples stealing it, in which case, well, could have stolen, they would have been very quick to, to bring the body back again. There's an empty tomb. The body was missing. Some have argued that the Roman guards would have gone AWOL in order to allow some of this to happen. And just to give you a quick idea, for them to uh, fail in their duties would have, re- would have resulted in them being executed, most likely being lit alive, stripped naked, and having their clothing used as kindling to actually light them into what they would have called a Roman torch. I think they would have been, I don't know about you, I would have been extra motivated to stay awake and to stay present. So I don't think that that's easy to convince us of. And another is that the appearances of Jesus were simply hallucinations. And again, I, I, don't, I don't have the, the wherewithal to explain the psychology involved, but just let me encourage you that professionals have argued that is simply that this theory is simply not supported by the psychological principles governing the appearances of hallucinations. If you consider the number of people that he revealed himself to, the effect that it had on them, um, where, where, when it was one person, two people, a group of disciples, in, in one case, 500 people. And again, it does not address the issue of the missing body and why it wasn't produced. The most compelling evidence, I believe, for the resurrection of Jesus is the absolute, almost overnight, transformation of the lives of the disciples. Where they went from being absolutely, guys, if you think about it, they were smashed. I don't mean that they were just a little bit disappointed, like, ah, you know, my team lost. There's always next year. Like, it it wasn't that kind of disappointment. They, were, they would have been gutted, disappointed, heartbroken. What, what they thought they'd been investing their lives into for three years just smashed in front of them. Who, who they thought Jesus was, like it just disappeared into the mist. They were scared. They were intimidated. They had all deserted Jesus. What would have produced such a radical, bold, confident transformation other than an absolutely convincing, compelling exposure to the resurrected Jesus. What else would cause ordinary men and women to be willing to lay their lives down? And by the way, most of them did land up laying their lives down. In fact, tradition holds that Peter, one of the disciples, actually refused to be crucified the right way around because he didn't want to be crucified like Jesus. He insisted that they crucify him upside down. Others were killed by having, by having boiling tar poured over them. These guys were, they were brutally beaten. Christians have been slaughtered in lion's dens. They have been used as Roman candles to light Roman roads. They have been mistreated. They have been persecuted. What? What else would cause them to be so confident that they'd say, you can take this body, you can't take my life. If they weren't absolutely to the core of their being convinced 
in the resurrection of Jesus. Not just the death, but in the resurrection. And the reason why this is so important for us and why you can have hope this Easter Resurrection Sunday is because there are these incredible implications for us. As I said at the beginning, if, if Jesus rose from the dead, and if Scripture is correct that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me, if I'm a follower of Jesus, then that means that God can speak and breathe life into the dead or dying areas of your life. It means that there is hope. It means that however much you've struggled with a habit, with a pattern, with, with some kind of destructive path or journey in your life, that actually Jesus came and he broke the power of sin. It's available to us. We have to accept it. We have to embrace it. But it is available to us. Thomas Arnold a well-known historian at Oxford University said the following, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind, this is an historian, Oxford-educated historian, which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. If that's true, I'm just here to encourage you that there are some great implications. One of them, as I mentioned earlier, is that you can know God. So because of what Jesus did, because of the fact that he didn't only die on the cross for our sins, but that he actually raised back to life, you can know God. You can know him personally. You can have that personal, intimate relationship with him. Secondly, we can find freedom. Romans 6 verse 15 says that we, uh, sorry, well then, since God's grace has set us free from the Lord, does that mean that we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become a slave to whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin which leads to death. We spoke about that on Friday. Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. You can, you can become, and it sounds, you see, we think it's a negative word, but actually that slave in this sense to God means, God, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to trust you. You're the master. I'm the servant. I believe that you know what's best. I'm going to obey. I'm going to, I'm going to trust you. And in fact, I want to encourage you to go all in. Only you know. If you've ever tried to actually take God seriously, only you know if you've flirted, dated, or actually gone all in, been committed, gone into the covenant. God, I'm in this. I'm going all in. I promise you that when you do, you will find life. I'm not saying it'll be easy. I'm not saying it'll all be smooth. I'm not saying it's a silver bullet or an amazing shortcut. I'm not. In fact, sometimes it's going to be really challenging and really tough but it's to make us stronger. We will find freedom. We'll unpack that a bit more in the series starting next week. Third, we can discover God's purpose. Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 10, one of my favorite passages says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. 
So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. You can discover purpose. In fact, I'd go further and say you can discover God's purpose. It is our dream, it is our hope, that people in this church or through this church more and more will get to a point where, where, they, where, where they have found freedom so, so that the, the windscreen is clear, the lenses are clear, that they can see more clearly God's purpose for their life. That they can get to a place where they can honestly say, I was made for this. Like, I was made for this. We can know God, we can find freedom, we can discover purpose. And the resurrection, I believe, even empowers us to make a difference. Matthew 5 verse 16 says, In the same way, let your good deeds shine for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. You see, do you see the order? God wants us to know Him personally, to enjoy a relationship with Him. As we do that, He helps us to get rid of all the baggage and the brokenness and the past and the graffiti and just stuff that can hold us back. That, that leads us into actually discovering purpose. And oh, by the way, an incredible byproduct of that, like one of the great fruits of that is that you'll actually get to make a difference in this world. The fruit of that will be that you will shine like a light and that through your sincere, authentic, healthy, gen, genuinely generous good deeds will actually bring glory to God. Not glory to you. Yes, Jason's such a good guy. No, no, like God must be good. If he can use Jason, God must be good. Can you imagine living a life where your good deeds don't bring glory to you, but they actually make people want to know more about God? They, they, they pour a little bit of salt on their tongue. In fact, this is in a passage where it says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. So that your life is actually salt. You're making people thirsty to taste and see that the Lord is good. Come on, does anybody want to live that kind of life? That's what I'm telling you. That the death and resurrection of Jesus is not there to invite us into a boring survival life only. Yes, it's tough. Yes, you're often going to find yourself in a battle. But you're fighting a fight worth fighting. It's a life worth living. And we would love for people to get to a place where they can honestly say, I never knew it could be like this. I never knew serving God could be like this. I never knew it could... It could be this faith-building, this fulfilling, this exhilarating. I never knew I could make a difference in someone's life. I, I never knew that, that it could be like this where, where his yoke really is easy and his burden really is light. I never knew it could be like this. I never knew it could be so energizing. Like, like what do you mean I need to sleep? Like, I just want to carry on, you know? Oh, yeah, I'll go to sleep. God's built me with limits, okay? But like, I can't wait to wake up because I want to go make a difference again. I never knew it could be like this. That's what the death and resurrection of Jesus invites us into. But we have to respond. The worship team can come on up. They're going to do that really, really quickly and really, really quietly. Really, really quickly and really, really quietly so as not to distract you. Because I'm going to get your attention back in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. You're late, Jermaine. Thanks so much. I want to be very serious with you for a moment. Try not to be distracted by what's going on behind me. 
death and the resurrection of Jesus invites us to a response. You don't drift towards that kind of surrender. You don't drift towards accepting that outrageous grace of God, that our sins were carried by and paid for by Jesus. Like, like we don't drift. We have to, we have to, we have to choose. God, I'm ex- God, it freaks me out. I wish I could pay the price. I wish I could do more. But I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to accept that forgiveness. That's a choice. We have to choose to accept that forgiveness and give up on trying to add anything to that forgiveness in terms of finding salvation. But that's the one half. The other half is that we have to commit to following. So that's, so that's about forgiveness from our past, but, but then resurrection invites us to freedom for our future where we follow Jesus. And I want to encourage you to make that decision today. And there's some people that need to make that decision for the first time, but there'd be others of us that are needing to actually recommit to the following part. Maybe you even need to recommit to the, God, I'm going to accept your forgiveness. I keep trying to add to it. I keep trying to grovel. I keep trying to, you know, even I'm, I'm serving at that preschool thing at church, hoping it's going to like pay off some of my stuff. You mean I don't have to do that? So maybe you have to renew your acceptance of forgiveness. For many of us, though, we have to renew a commitment to follow, where we surrender. And you know, you know if there's an area in your life right now where you're needing to surrender or re-surrender an area that you're just finding that you keep taking back. Like you kind of let it go and then you take it back. You kind of let it go and then you get mad at God and you take it back. And it's because you're in the Fridays and the Saturdays of life. Friday only became good later. It wasn't good Friday 2,000 years ago. Friday only became good through the lens of later. I wonder if some of us have misnamed the season of life that we're in. I wonder if we've misnamed some pain that we're going through, just just almost cursing it. Where God's saying, no, 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 don't curse it. And don't give up. Something good's coming. So maybe you need to surrender that again afresh. Maybe another way of, of putting this is, is responding to the rescue where we just say yes. Some of you have been around long enough to hear me tell the story maybe a couple of years ago where, where a few of us went cliffing in a place called Suicide Gorge. And we'd, we'd kind of been hiking into this gorge with, you know, where you hike for a couple of hours and then you jump off rocks and go through water and, and, and everything for a few hours. And kind of halfway through this thing, my younger brother who was with us wasn't well and he landed up seizing up uh, and we think hypothermia started to kick in, etc. I don't have time to go into all the details, but eventually it got to a point where we couldn't move him from, from where Sam is standing to where I'm standing. Like he would have screamed out in pain. He was totally, he was like, it was like he was frozen rigid we couldn't move him we certainly couldn't throw him off these cliffs you know we have to land in the water etc so so some of the guys ran ahead it was going to take a couple of hours to get out there was no signal they had to get out go and try and find some help and about six or seven hours later so so we're still in the same place thinking it's starting to get colder and, and we got to a point that the sun was going down and and i was honestly coming to terms with the fact that if we don't get help tonight so if they don't come before it's dark i cannot see 
how it's possible for him to survive through a cold night until the next morning. And then just like in a movie, you know, yeah, the whoa, 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 whoa of the helicopter, legit, and it came. And, uh, and long story short, a guy lowers down from the helicopter, a volunteer, not someone that was paid, a volunteer, lowered down, uh, a medic first, and a mountaineer, and, and they, they kind of try to help him out. And ultimately, all he could do was surrender to the rescue. All he could do was allow them to put this rope, this harness around him to pull him back up. Now, he might have been tempted to be arrogant and say, guys, it's cool, I've got this. Which he didn't. But you know how many of us do that to God? Like, it's okay, I'll make my own way. He's like, you're dying. And we're saying, no, no, I've got this. It takes humility. It takes humility to surrender to that thing where everything in you wants to prove yourself and wants to make your own way. To actually surrender, guys, it does. It's not easy. It, it takes humility. And long story short, he was hoisted up. Those of us that remaining went up with as well and were flown to where they were able to treat him and he recovered remarkably quickly. And I've got to tell you, afterwards, I felt the sense of debt. I felt indebted to these people. It, it was weird for me that we didn't get a bill. That's what Jesus did for us. He, he paid this incredible price. He sorted the bull out. We accept that forgiveness. We respond to the rescue. We surrender our past and we surrender our future. Father, just before we wrap up, I pray that you'd help us to take to heart anything that you're trying to address with us personally right now. God, help us, help us to pay attention your gentle, nudging, prompting, whisper, and help us just to be honest with you for a moment. Just while your eyes are closed, let me encourage you, you don't have to pray an impressive prayer. God invites you to pray an honest prayer, a raw prayer, an authentic prayer. Whether it's a prayer of surrender, or whether it's a prayer of just inviting that forgiveness into your life, where you want to enter into a relationship with Him. It can be something as simple as, God, thank you so much. Thank you that you loved me. Thank you that you reached out to me before I ever reached out to you. Thank you that Jesus died in my place. God, I accept that gift. Come into my life. Wash me clean. Lead me. Empower me. Help me to trust you one step at a time. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, while your eyes are still closed, if you prayed, if you prayed that prayer this evening, the Bible tells us that you have, you have transitioned from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It tells us, the Bible tells us, that you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That power of sin is broken. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy tomorrow, but it means that now you actually have a chance with the power of God. And whatever, whatever issue you are surrendering to God, if you're a Christian, I'm telling you, there's hope. There's hope and there's power for tomorrow. 